Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Andrea Askowitz. This is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. This is episode 100. It's crazy. That's crazy. Did you hear that? 100 episodes. I know. Anyway, I just cannot believe it. So here's the thing. This is our 100th episode. It's taken five years, and this is not our only job. And we're moms. So here's what I've been thinking about lately, and I I don't want to diss on feminism, but I do a little bit. Like, I've really been questioning everything that I've grown up believing in. I mean, I am a feminist, so don't get me wrong, but okay, so maybe I should clarify what I mean by that. I mean men and women, all people, trans, no matter what, non-binary, everybody is equal. I 100% believe that. But I also realized that where we are in today's society is just, we're not there. We're not even close to being there. I don't think we're alone. This is what the whole, all of like 2020 was about. And then even just, uh, you know, when there was a verdict in the George Floyd case, it's like, okay, we, well, yes, finally, we have justice. Should we celebrate justice? I mean, but why should we be celebrating? We should have had justice a long time ago. It's like, we're celebrating, yay, men are finally doing the dishes and, you know, helping with maybe... What? Men are finally doing the dishes? I doubt it. I think it happens. I think there's a new generation of men who actually maybe will take a day off when a kid is sick and needs to go to the dentist. But what we're saying is they're only taking that one day off, whereas women, moms, are expected to give up their job or whatever it is to be a mom, have a job, take care of their people. And do all the emotional labor. And I am in a particular rage today because this episode is coming out right before Mother's Day. And so I'm thinking about the plight of mothers. I heard the other day or I read the other day that that childcare is infrastructure the same way a road and a traffic light is infrastructure. Every mother needs childcare to get to work the same way we need a traffic light. So why the fuck don't we have childcare here in the United States of America that's affordable to everybody? I'm freaking tired, and I know that you are so exhausted. I have two kids. Actually, there are two mothers in my family, and still I feel like there's not enough support for mothers. I mean, what we're saying is like, fucking A. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, we're not saying anything new, but um, I wanted to say all this because on today's show, we have a story that is, it's like, in my mind, it's like mother to the extreme story, but it's not about mother. It's not about all the work that mothers have to do, but it is about being a mother and we're bringing it to you right before Mother's Day. I'm really excited to get to this, this story. 
Yeah, me um, too. I mean, it's it's interesting because we both, like when we read it, both, I think, um, related in some way or another. Because when we decided to have children, both of us on our own, well, at least with you, with your first child, you imagine being a mother as so different than what it actually turns out to be. I mean, I just kind of like, oh, I'm going to have a baby and they'll grow up and I'll be able to teach them and share with them. But it's so much more than that. So what happens when you have a child who A, doesn't turn out the way you thought, or B, has a significant disability? What then? Right. Well, that's what we're bringing the listener today, that kind of story. I listened to that podcast episode you sent me on being with Krista Tippett. It was the April 8th, 2021 episode with Brian Dorries. I was so taken by, okay, so I want to explain why it was cool. So this guy, Brian Dorries, created Theater of War, which is a theater company that produces ancient Greek tragedies. And it's been going, he's been doing it for 10, 20 years. And what he does is he he puts on productions of Greek tragedies. And it's like, these are like the saddest most melodramatic, horrible, bloody stories. But what he's found is that people who listen to these stories and people, the audiences to these plays, they feel hopeful in the face of these stories. There's this quote that he said that I just, I thought was really, really interesting. He said something about them because they're not whitewashed. They reveal the truth about humanity. They give people a place, right, to reflect and connect and and even feel joy, which sounds so strange because you think that, um, I don't know, you think of a tragedy, you don't think of joy, but think about a time that you connected to a story. And so that's what I did. Like I started thinking about the times that I connected to stories. And sometimes they're so tragic, but I'm like, oh, thank God that's not me. Or I relate because... Wait, I think it's really... No, no, no. You, I, I, I wanted to ask you, wait, what? Thank God it's not you? Yeah, thank God it's not happening to me right now. It's like not my turn because I've already dealt with so many shit, so much, so many tragedies and so many okay, deaths. Okay, that sounds, that, that sounds mean. Man, but That's who doesn't so think funny. that? I don't think like that. But when I'm listening to a story or watching a tragic play and it's really sad, I don't think, thank God that's not me. I think, Wow. That's so real. That's so true. I think that's the purpose of art. It's an appropriate place to share tragedy and like understand each other, our humanness together. And that's what this guy, Brian Dorries, is doing with Greek tragedy. And that's what I think we're going to do today with the story that we're going to bring. Because it is, it's tragic. It's then um, hopeful and then tragic again. It really makes made me understand just the shit we go through. It's working out our shit. Yeah. Well, um, my friend Diana's. I before we get to Diana, I just want to say my friend Star is the one who Star Sarriego is the one who sent it to me. And while I was listening, I was like, because it's interesting, we both have both listened to it and have two not two different perspectives, but kind of came at the same perspective different ways. But I kept checking to make sure, like, I was tuning into the correct episode because I'm like, why did she send me this? Why am I reading? Like, why am I listening to something about Greek tragedies? And then he said, um, at some point, uh, quote, tragedy is about people learning too late. And I was like, oh man. So by them performing. 
them telling this story, what they're doing is they're sharing something that they learned too late so that maybe they can help others either heal from something they learned too late or help them so that they don't make the same mistake. But by helping other people heal, you can also heal yourself. I feel like tragic stories are all about helping us feel less alone. But what Brian Dory's made me realize is that it doesn't, stories don't need to be comedies for us to feel joy and hope. And that's what I hope happens today. What I want to make, um, sort of make a distinction about this episode is this episode is about brutal honesty. Why is it important to be gut-wrenchingly honest in a story? And that's what I want us to talk about after we hear the story that we're about to bring you. And the story that we're about to bring you is by Diana Cooperschmidt, who admits her own betrayal. Diana's story originally appeared in Still Standing Magazine, June 9th, 2020. And um, after the break, we'll hear Diana's story, and then we'll talk to her about why she wrote it and why she chose to share it. I'm Allison Langer, and every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, I host First Draft. It's a class, kinda, because you'll get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a group where you come together with other writers online, write to a prompt and share what you wrote. It's the only way to get better. Come join me. Check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com or go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio to learn more. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. We're back. This is Allison Langer, and you are listening to Writing Class Radio. Here's Diana Cooperschmidt with her story titled About Second Chances. We were on our way to meet the family that would potentially adopt our infant daughter. The day was overcast with ominous, steely, low-hanging clouds that promised rain. My mother's words reverberated in my head in her distinct Russian accent. Rain is good luck in our family, she would often say. Then she would rattle off testimonials to her theory. The day she and my father married, the day we arrived in the U.S. from Soviet Ukraine, the day I took first place in my piano recital competition when I was 12. I used to laugh thinking how ridiculous meteorological superstitions were. But on this day, I silently hoped my mother was right, that the universe was again confirming its cosmic favor. Emma was three months old, our first child, when we made the drive to Pennsylvania. When she was first placed in my arms at the hospital, in that tingling afterglow of having just created life, I looked down to survey her face. And that's when I saw it. Something's wrong, I said. I looked to my husband. Fear was engraved into his face, in the widening of his eyes. I mined my brain for the maternally correct words. She doesn't look like either of us. I fixed my desperate gaze to the doctor. 
That's what I said. What I thought was critical, ugly, and completely unacceptable. What I thought as I cradled the small, greenish, alien-looking baby, my daughter Emma, was that she looked sick, abnormal, imperfect. Of course, I had no experience with what a newborn looked like seconds after entering the world. I expected to see a balding, cherubic infant with features that suggested some future version of what could evolve into my thick, straight hair, my husband's aquiline nose, my grandmother's hazel eyes. What I saw instead was slightly low-set ears, wide-set eyes, a flat, almost non-existent nose bridge, thin lips, and a small head. I had not expected this. The wait for the genetic testing seemed interminable, but as we sat facing the neurologist, his demeanor dry but not devastated, we listened to medical terms embedded in sentences we'd never heard before and could never unhear. Chromosomal abnormality, profound mental retardation. This was 1996 before retardation was replaced by a more politically correct, more palatable term, intellectual disability. Physical and developmental delay. Then, procedures to correct what was broken. Gastrostomy tube for feedings, vesicostomy, a surgery to fix her bladder. Today's Sesame Street program is brought to you by the letter V for vesicostomy. Prognosis unknown. I couldn't breathe. This wasn't supposed to happen to us. My husband and I were young, healthy. The hospital social worker met with us to discuss options other than bringing Emma home. I did not storm out of her office outraged or offended. Instead, I stayed and listened as she broached the subject of placing our baby with an adoptive family. I choked silently on my guilt. Here I was, a social worker myself, having had experience with special needs kids, yet I could not envision raising my own. As a teacher's assistant, I worked with a group of profoundly delayed children and teens, and this brought me in contact with their families as well. One day, a mom of one of my students tearfully shared with me her worries. Who's going to take care of my daughter when I'm gone? Now, I was that mom. The life with a child with disabilities, I imagined, was dark and insular, and one in which I would be forced to exist in the periphery alongside her. I believed I couldn't love my imperfect child. We'll only do it if we find a good home for her, I said to my husband Anatoly, feigning resolve. He nodded in agreement or capitulation. She deserves better, I said. My family and I had abandoned our homeland of Soviet Ukraine in the late 1970s to join an exodus of countless Jewish refugees for a better land, a better life. In those early weeks after Emma's birth, my father's words resonated even louder in my head, the iteration that children must do and be better than their parents. This was not better. This was so not better. The adoption agency called weeks later to say they'd found a prospective family. I held the receiver with too tight a grip, feeling my nerves like taut rubber bands ready to snap. Words escaped me. I handed the phone to Anatoly. It's for you, I said as I lowered myself into a chair in time to relieve my buckling knees. As we drove toward Pennsylvania to the home of strangers that could potentially irrevocably shift the trajectory of our lives, I voiced what I imagined we were both thinking. What if we like them? I know what you mean, he said. Then we'll have to go through with it. But what if we don't like them, I thought. We sat at the table of Moshe and Leah, an Orthodox Jewish couple, and watched them help their three children eat breakfast. 
All three had been adopted. All three had Down syndrome. One of the little boys put his fists together after slipping the last piece of his bagel and cream cheese into his mouth. David just used sign language to ask for more, Moisha explained. The children all understand English, Hebrew, and sign. Three languages. Most people barely know one, (laughs) and they call them retarded. Then he let out a hearty laugh that echoed through the space. This was love, pure, unadulterated love. Emma's going to do well there, I said to Anatoly on the drive back. He nodded. We agreed to not wait long before trying for another child. I placed my hand wistfully on my belly, where new life was already growing. I wanted a do-over. This baby would be that. This time, I would get it right. Until the adoption was finalized, Emma had been residing in a special needs nursery where I spent each day with her. She was almost six months old when we relinquished her to her new family. The day was sunny, the sky a baby blue. The forecast was unlucky, with 0% chance of showers. Back home, I sat in my beanbag chair, watched my belly grow, and wept. The prospect of a healthy baby brought with it hope and guilt in equal measure. I felt Emma's absence in my core. It had been five months since we gave her up. I knew life with and without her, and I missed the former. I finally voiced my darkest thoughts to Anatoly. I think we made a mistake giving her away. And that's when he confessed that he'd been visiting Emma in Pennsylvania behind my back because he missed her. On his last visit, he'd found out something shocking. Leah had left Moisha to raise the four children on his own. Anatoly fell silent, and I, true to my character, unleashed a storm. I railed in outrage at Leah's betrayal. We had entrusted her, after all, with the well-being of our child. I didn't care to know that perhaps it was too much for her, that she was overwhelmed, and this was not what she expected, that she was well-meaning in her intentions, that she was doing what she thought was best for Emma, for herself. But when I inhaled, I understood that to judge her, ignorant of her reasons, would be too easy and too harsh, and only a finger point away from myself. My betrayal was less forgivable. I abandoned my flesh and blood, after all. And suddenly, my maternal heart, which I believed had withered and flatlined, sprang back to life hardier than ever. It was akin to feeling famished a gnawing inner emptiness and not knowing what would feed your hungry soul until someone offers you sustenance and you say, yes, that's what I hungered for, but didn't know how to ask. In the same way, I couldn't know to wish for the universe to smile on me in this way, but when it did, I understood my course. Leah's actions for us meant that the conditional surrender to a two-parent household had changed. Now we had our rights back. She had opened a door and I was grateful to her. And just like that, Emma came home. I don't recall the weather that day. It didn't matter. Our son Joshua was born a month after Emma's return, and our second daughter Hannah ushered in the millennium three years later. The little girl that I didn't think I could love enough rearranged my heart. Emma blossomed into a person with likes, dislikes, and strong opinions. Even in her teens, though not verbal, save for two magical words, Mama and Emma, There was no misunderstanding her. When she wanted praise, she put her hands together, prompting us to clap for her. She showed affirmation by nodding not just her head, but engaged her whole body. She blew kisses by putting her lips together and effecting a loud popping sound. 
but her laugh, her laugh was most wondrous of all. It was silent, but tremendous. It was lung emptying and debilitating in its strength. When Emma laughed, her generous cheeks swallowed her eyes, drool danced on her lips, and she folded in half like a marionette whose strings had been unexpectedly released. And she was not to be ignored. From the corner of my eyes, I'd watch her make her way down our two sunken living room steps, scooting on her diapered bottom, because she didn't walk and probably never would, closing her eyes in anticipation of the not-so-soft landing. Then she'd pull herself up onto the couch next to me, reach for the remote I'd be hiding behind my back, and hand it to me with adolescent defiance. Okay, okay, big girl, I'd say in acquiescence, and change the channel from The Real Housewives to Sesame Street. And so our family life of quotidian events ensued. We chauffeured Joshua and Hannah to fencing practice and violin recitals. Emma attended her special school and received therapies to help her reach her potential. A parade of nurses to care for her after school hours prompted me to joke that we should install a revolving door to our apartment. Anatoly and I both worked two jobs and even found time to train for and run the New York City Marathon. And when I paused long enough, I realized that we had carved out our own family culture, a new normal, our own narrative, and the life that I had so feared, dark, marginalized, and burdensome, was not that at all. It was luminescent, inclusive, and imperfectly imperfect. Someone once said, life can be fair, it can give you second chances. With Emma's return, I realized I had my real do-over. I spent the next 18 years falling in love with my daughter, trying to undo an initial wrong, make up the time lost with her. Then one day, when I believed it was safe to exhale, she got sick, went into the hospital, and never came home. Why she had to leave so soon, I'll never know. Maybe her lessons were dispensed, and it was time for me to learn them, make sense of them. If someone had asked me long ago what the worst day of my life was, I would have said the day Emma was born. Today, I would say the day she died. Maybe that was the lesson. Empty room, possessions and boxes. It's so hard to to write about diagnosis and the doctory wordy words. And I thought this narrator did such a good job with like gastronomy and the Sesame Street thing. V is our word today, you know. Um, so I thought the terms were really well done. She didn't overload us with tons of medical information. We got just enough. And I loved that. Um, and then she says, I believed I couldn't love her. And I was like, oh yeah, I get it, I get it. I felt the honesty there and I just, I loved it so much because of that. And right at the top, because she was so vulnerable and honest, I believed everything she had to say. I really felt for her. And I felt that she was blaming herself. Like I wanted to do her over, I wanted to get it right. And I know that when you're a mom and you're pregnant, like we take this on as like, it's our fault if something goes wrong in utero. And, um, I didn't feel that so much until she said that. And then she's just like, I, I want to get this right because she has an idea of what her life was supposed to look like. And don't we all? This wasn't supposed to happen to me. And I remember saying those words myself. 
And so when I read this, I, I got that feeling. And I was like, no, who, but does anyone ever feel like this is supposed to happen to them? You're saying, Allison, that you also thought something tragic is not supposed to happen to you. Yeah. But I really feel like the more people I've met, like in some of the volunteer work and stuff like that, and, and the people who come and have read stories, like we're just all the same. Like all we want is a healthy family. When that doesn't happen, you know, it's not Cinderella. I want to come back to that question about um, tragedy because um, what Allison, what you're talking about is your baby died. And um, what this narrator is talking about is not having the perfect baby. And um, so I want to come back to this question at the end after, after I talk about, I want us to talk about the writing and what was beautiful about this story and how it really hit me in the gut. But um, to, I'm imagining that listeners or people who have read this story would be really angry at this line of reasoning right now. Because we're talking about a child who has um, mental and physical delays and we're comparing that to a death. And so that's why I want to talk about that later with, um, with the narrator. Like what kind of feedback has she gotten because of the honesty she gave us in the story. But before that, I want to talk about how she opened the story with this. In her family, like a, a dark and stormy night is good luck. And she was on her way to, we know from the very beginning that she's on her way to put her child in the arms of another family. So she's giving up her child for adoption right from the beginning. And I thought that she spent an interesting amount of time there with telling us about her own mother and that um, it was kind of like a relief valve for me to go back to the weather. And she did it three times in the story. So she started, because I was thinking like, why is she telling us about this rainy day and how her mother thinks rain is good luck? But I think, I really do think it helped me kind of step into the story. Because if we had just started with the birth, which comes next, I don't know if I would have been able to handle it yet. And I, so I thought that it was very smart, strategic writing in terms of structure. Um, when she has her baby and first sees her baby, she says she was trying to think of maternally appropriate things to say or, yeah, to say out loud. And I just thought that was brilliant because she knew that what she was thinking was, was ugly. I don't mean to judge at all because I thank you. I, I feel thankful for this narrator for telling us what was deep down inside of her that felt in her mind ugly at the moment because that's what she was feeling and that's the truth of the story. She did it again, this kind of honest, honest, beautiful writing when she was in the, um, I think she was talking to a counselor. She didn't storm out when the counselor was telling, giving her options. Instead of saying like, fuck you, I love my baby, which she probably thought maybe some moms might say, she didn't storm out, she listened. And she said she choked on her guilt. I am just feeling for her, I'm so touched by her. Okay, and then when the um, mother of the family that adopted Emma leaves, the narrator is so pissed and she feels like that woman betrayed her. 
that woman betrayed the family. And then she says this beautiful thing, like it was one finger point away from the self. So basically she's calling herself out. And she did say my betrayal was less forgivable. That's what we see in Greek tragedies is betrayal, betrayal, betrayal. And here is a story about betrayal, personal betrayal. And this narrator needs to tell us that she betrayed herself. And then she gets a second chance. I feel so much hope and love and light. And the, and the daughter, she says two words, mama and Emma. That was such a great detail. This is a mother's story. I love the part where she says, you know, once she came home and everything, it wasn't bad at all. And it was like the perfect, the imperfect imperfections. And it's like, it just, you know, she just hit it so well, because what is family, you know? I mean, raising, we talked about motherhood and stuff like that. It's, it's so hard and we're all so imperfect. I mean, all those years of taking pictures, when I was a photographer taking family pictures of other people, uh, they would come and they would be screaming at each other and the whole thing and trying to get this perfect picture to represent this perfect family. And I would just and be cracking up. shut up and smile for a second. I was like, let's, let's capture the imperfections because that is the part that is most beautiful. And that's the part people really relate to. If you're going to send some beautiful, perfect picture of like a family of kids, it's just like nobody's buying that. It, what it took to get to those things is what it takes to get through life. She says, life can be fair. It can give you second chances. I had my do-over. And I just love that. And she took it. She took the do-over. And that's why we love her so much. She, she realized she fucked up. And she's like, you know what? Now's my chance. And she did it. And she, she portrayed it so well in her writing. I'm so sad at the end that, that Emma died. I'm but... She, bring, she brings meaning to even that double tragedy. That's the tragedy. And that's what she said at the end. The worst day wasn't the day she was born. The worst day was the day she died. It's so sad and so hopeful. And for people like me who lost their kid at 16 and a half months, like to have gotten, you know, a year and a half, like a, you know, another 17 years would have been, you know, a blessing. So while I'm listening to the story, it's like, I feel her pain. I'm in it. I like the whole thing. And when I walk away, I think, okay, I've lost a kid, but I have three others at this point and I'm going to enjoy them, you know, regardless of their annoyances and everything, their imperfections. I'm going to enjoy the imperfection because hearing what somebody else went through makes me also look at my life differently. That's part of the hope. You just wanna be the person who finds hope in each story. So there's always something. Everyone's always going through something. And so by hearing the story, it attaches us, it connects us, because there's always a, a bond. There's a love bond that comes in, in tragedy. So I would like to um, open the conversation to Diana. So hi, Diana. I want to ask you why you wanted to tell this story out loud. Like, why did you want to share this story? Or first you can answer why you wanted to write it for yourself, and then why did you want to share it? The deep emotional why. So I started writing, um, I guess, to make sense, right, of what happened, because Emma passed very unexpectedly. She had been medically fragile. The doctor that predicted she wasn't going to live past her first birthday, we were kind of like giving him the middle finger. Yeah, she had a death sentence very early on. 
And so we were about to celebrate her 19th birthday and we were like, we can breathe, you know, she's fine. She's medically okay. And then she got pneumonia. So it was very unexpected. And I didn't know what to do with myself, you know, in the writing. And I started writing six months after she passed. Um, there was something healing about it. Then I started taking a writing workshop just because my paragraphs were turning into pages. And I said, I don't know anything. I have no history in writing. I'm a social worker. I'm a photographer on the weekends. Like, I've never been like a writer in the sense that I did this in my free time. So I don't know why I started. I started writing and it turned into something. And then the feedback I was getting in my writing classes was very encouraging. So I'm like, let let me continue to do this because it felt right. And it also gave me a chance to reflect on what, you know, I knew or what I felt or what I thought. I think Joan Didion maybe said something like that. Like you, you write to find out what you think. And... I found the process healing, but it was very difficult because here I am learning this craft that I, I know very little about, you know, and it was like opening a vein, right? You know, I got out of it what I didn't expect. In other words, when living life, you know, with the three kids, you're kind of like on cruise control and you don't have time to stop and think you're just like let me get to the next day and let, let's get the kids to this class and that and you know my other two kids were like these overachievers you know <laughs> they did everything above and beyond uh, but Emma kept me grounded you know Emma reminded me that you know it's okay like I was enough with her with my kids it was like I had to entertain them I had to you know read I had to take them to this class and that I had to stimulate them and with Emma it was just enough to be there and sing to her and like still hold her as a baby because she was developmentally like a baby and she was mine she you know my other two were running away and this one was just I could hold she was my perennial baby and so long answer to your short question. Love the answer. But I want you to, now I want you to answer because that's, that's beautiful. I think it's so, everything you said is what I would expect someone to say who went through something difficult and the writing process helps them heal and figure it out. And Joan Didion, you write to learn how you think. Why did you put it in a book that you are now publishing? Like, why do you want to share it with the world? Okay, good question. Yeah. So I, um, when I, when, when Emma was alive, I had this sense of, you know, wanting to keep uh, things like, I wanted to have a sense of normalcy. I didn't want to be a special parent. I didn't look for those special parents um, that Emma went to school with, you know, classmates. I didn't reach out to that community. Um, because I didn't want that kind of a treatment. The narrative that I bought when we decided to give Emma up was, first of all, I couldn't envision that I was going to have, you know, this full life and these other healthy children and Emma. And all I thought was that, you know, if I'm going to be a parent of a disabled child, that disabled child is going to be tragic and and live a tragic existence and be pitied and I would be relegated to that periphery to that otherness and I would have to live alongside her so I did everything to avoid being in that special needs world for better or for worse now I regret it as I meet other parents who are raising kids with disabilities and that's I mean and that's like at the crux of why I want that book out there because 
I, first of all, want somebody to feel less alone. And I want them, I, you know, I want them to maybe see themselves in, in my story and find comfort or some kind of solace, you know. I felt lonely. I didn't, I had one other friend who had a, a my best friend had a, a child with Down syndrome, but there was no comparisons, like, you know, in terms of abilities, there weren't really things, and there was an age difference, there weren't things we could do together. So I still felt like I was the only one that had a special needs child. Um, and I wish that I reached out to those people. We shared a, you know, a common denominator. I would have felt less lonely. So I hope that the book does that for somebody. Like if somebody could just find any kind of solace or peace or have it resonate with them, then will it will have been, you know, worth it. Andrea, this is what we talked about at the top about what Brian Dory said um in the podcast in the krista tippett on being podcast is tragedy about people learning too late so there were two i mean she learned too late you learned that lesson too late but then got to relearn it but then this is another bummer that you are learning now that it would have really helped you be feel less alone if you had reached out to um to the parents of other other children like Emma. I love it. What a great reason to write. There's a narrative, right? That, you know, society has this narrative where we, we, you know, we are very ableist. And so we paint this picture. Like I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought that there's no way I can have a happy life or an existence with a special needs child. And that, you know, the reasons for me giving her up initially were two prong, right? I was being selfish and I was being selfless. I wanted uh, an unburdened life. And I also didn't think that I was in a position, like being all depressed and a mess, to give really the life that Emma deserved. So we gave her up to a family that could give her that love. So that was my reasoning. But I mean, had I believed that you can, you know, yes, raising a special needs child is difficult, but it's also joyful. Had I known that, I wouldn't have. But, you know, I got this gift of having an adoption reverse. And I don't know many families that get to experience that. It was like, you know, beshared, right? In in Yiddish, there's a word. It was meant to be. I was meant to make the, yeah, I was meant to take a detour. And I was, and she was meant to come back. And that's exactly what happened. And I I get all spiritual after that because some other things happened. Yeah. So this experience with Emma, how did that change you as a person? Like, raising a special needs child and realizing that you are capable of unconditional love because maybe you could help me yeah um i mean i always knew that i was capable of it you know in my heart of hearts i knew that you know i but i think that initial shock you know being a 26 year old and not being able to envision a happy life, that was just like almost my instinctual reaction. But then, you know, I spent the next 18 years doing what I was supposed to be doing, doing what, you know, I realized I was always able to do, and that is love her enough, you know? And she taught me. She taught me in her nonverbal way about unconditional acceptance. like. There were no conditions set on me as a parent, as a person when I was with her, right? It was just playing and singing and clapping and rolling and laughing. Whereas with my kid, you know, my healthy kids, there were conditions 
from them that need to be met and conditions on my end that need to be met as a parent. And so Emma was like, by like, here's exhibit A, like, this is life, right? She was happy sitting and flipping through a magazine and watching her, you know, musicals, you know, she was, she just had this lightness of being and she was, she'll always look like she was in this Zen state, even though she was stimming, but she was the happiest little girl. And all you had to do was look in her direction and you were like, you know, you were everything to her. So that's what she taught me just by being there and showing me how to be in this world. I wonder, I mean, has the disabled community come down on you at all? Has anybody? Nobody. And for, at first, I remember taking a writing workshop at the 92nd Street Y and there's all these like older Jewish women. And I, and I, so when I read that chapter about uh, Pennsylvania. So I remember asking one group of writers if, you know, how they felt about me, you know, giving her up for adoption. Like, you know, cause I kept expecting judgment. I, I guess I really did. I asked the, the class and they said, we don't judge you. Like who? And I was surprised cause these are like older women. Like, I don't know what their ideas about motherhood, you know, what they've lived through. They said, nope, we don't judge. What's to judge? I think older it, women are less judgy than younger women because yeah, we all think we're going to get our shit differently and we're going to get it right and we're going to do it right. better. And then you realize like, mm. well, that is also the ultimate goal of sharing our stories and the truth of our stories is to, is to be trusted and, and honored for the sharing and not judged. And so I, think, I hope that, that your book, yeah. it's called Emma's Laughter. Emma's Laugh, The Gift of Second Chances. When did it come out? It's, it's coming, coming out in June. June oh, it's 15, coming out in June. Two months. Yeah. Oh, my God. So you guys, I know. can you pre-order it already? Yes, you can pre-order it. It's on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Very, very awesome. Thank you, Diana Cooperschmidt, for sharing your story. Diana is a photographer. She has a Master of Social Work degree. She works for the Department of Health in the Early Intervention Program. It's a federal entitlement program that serves children with disabilities from birth to three. Emma, her daughter, was a recipient of this program. Now, Diana provides those services for kids like Emma. This episode of Writing Class Radio was produced by Virginia Laura, Allison Langer, and me, Andrea Askowitz. Theme music by Justina Chandler. Additional music by Poddington Bear and Emia. There's more Writing Class Radio on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, stories to study, and editing resources. If you love the lessons you get on each episode, you can get them all in one place on our three-part video series for just $50. Click video classes on our website. If you want to be a part of the movement that helps people better understand each other through storytelling, follow us on Patreon. For $10 a month, you get an all-access pass to me where we will exchange emails and talk about where and how to get your stories published. For $25 a month, you get that pass, plus you can join Allison's first draft weekly writers group. There you can write and share your work every Tuesday, 12 to 1 Eastern. Go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. So look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours?
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.